would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be reading the first six verses of this chapter, though, giving our attention to verses 4 through 6. Before reading of the word, from the word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for the breadth and the depth of your law. And as we study and give our attention to this second commandment this evening, would you grow us in understanding the high calling that is ours as your redeemed children, and that our desire would be to worship you as you have told us how to worship you, that we would do so only and always through the finished work of our Savior, looking to him as he continues to work that wondrous grace in our lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of our God. You may be seated. As we move along in our study through the book of Exodus, and in particular give our focus here to the Ten Commandments, it will be important for us to keep in mind a couple of things. First is the context in which the law of the Lord was given. The children of Israel have already been redeemed from the land of Egypt, from slavery and from captivity. And so this is how, as a delivered people, they are called to live, live according to the law of the Lord. And so it is the imperatives, the commands of the Christian life that always follow God's work of sovereign grace. The second thing to keep in mind is how we are to take the commandments of the Lord and work them out into our lives. The Lord is after the hearts of His people. And so no matter how familiar we might be with the content of the commandments of the Lord, there is always so much more for us to learn as we consider the application of God's law to the hearts. And so as we look at the second commandment tonight, we want our attention to be here upon the heart's increased devotion to God. So let's think first tonight about the commandment itself. So this is our first point this evening, the content, that is the content of the second commandment. Now first, I think it's worth pointing out that in Roman Catholic and in Lutheran settings, the way in which they divide the Ten Commandments is different than how we divide them, in fact, how I believe we find them divided in Scripture. In Rome and Lutheran circles, they combine the first and second commandments into one, and then later they divide what is their ninth or the tenth commandment into two so that they still come away with ten commandments. But I think it's clear from the text that the first and the second commandment are different commandments, getting at different areas of emphasis. Though, of course, along with the other first four commandments, they have to do with loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, the first commandment is about who we worship, that we are to worship the Lord God alone, for He alone is God and is our Redeemer. 
And so there is to be no place for idolatry or misplaced worship or any form of syncretistic worship that might be tempting for the children of Israel. The second commandment is about how we worship the true God. Herman Bobbing writes that the second commandment deals with the true religion. It teaches us how we must worship God according to his will and command. And so the first commandment establishes the fact that God alone is God. And as the sole and alone God, he is worthy of our worship. But now we move on in the second commandment to listen to how the Lord tells us to worship him. Now let's think here of an example of this distinction between the first and second commandment from the history of Israel during the reign of King Jehu. Now before Jehu becomes king, there is this dark period in Israel's history where King Ahab and Jezebel are actively promoting Baal worship in the land of Egypt. It's bad enough that as monarchs they are worshiping Baal, but there is active promotion of Baal worship as opposed to worshiping the true God, leading the people in idolatry. Now sometime after the death of Ahab, Jehu becomes king, and he seeks to purge the land of Israel from Baal worship. And so he goes about to slaughter the household of Ahab and Jezebel. This is that portion of God's word that young boys love to hear in your Bible reading time together. He tricks the prophets of Baal to gather all together, and then he slaughters them, burns the house of Baal, and turns it into a toilet because Baal worship is just as worthless as what you would throw into a toilet. But for all of Jehu's zeal, in 2 Kings chapter 10, we read that Jehu followed in the sin of Jeroboam. And you might remember that Jeroboam was the first king in the nation of Israel upon the division of the kingdom. And Jeroboam's sin against the Lord was making golden calves and placing them in Dan and Bethel. And so Jehu was zealous to keep the first commandment by purging the land of Baal worship, but he failed to keep the second commandment by promoting and encouraging false worship of the Lord. The golden calves were not images of Baal. They were meant to be images of the Lord. And so Jehu's heart was divided, and eventually his line was cut off from the throne of Israel. And so this historical record helps us to see, among other things, that the Lord takes seriously how we approach him in worship. Now, this is so contrary to how the world around us in broad evangelicalism thinks today. In our own time, we are told that what matters most is the sincerity of the worshiper. Whatever helps you, whatever works best for you, whatever your preference is, as long as it stirs your heart and moves you toward God and warms your affections toward Him, we are told it's acceptable. But what could not be clearer from the second commandment is this is a completely false and self-centered way for us to reason. There have been a lot of sincere people who have gone sincerely astray by deviating from God's Word in presuming that they can worship Him any way that they please, and the consequences have been devastating. And so you see, what is presumed behind the second commandment is that the Word of God is sufficient, 
And in the sufficiency of Scripture, God has sufficiently revealed to us how we are to worship Him. This is what we call the regulative principle of worship, which is just an outflow of those fundamental attributes of Scripture, the authority, the necessity, the sufficiency of God's Word. God has spoken. Are we going to listen to what He has said? In the West, in America in particular, we tend to make worship about us and our felt needs, what we prefer, what is pleasing to our ears, what appeals to our desires and to our emotions. But very simply, worship is not about us. Worship is about the living God, and it's about listening to Him and giving to Him what He tells us to give unto Him. And so as we listen to His Word, He tells us both what is prescribed, what we are to offer to Him, and what is forbidden, what we are not to offer to Him. Our larger catechism in Question and Answers 108 and 109 help us to understand what is required and what is forbidden. 108 helps us to understand the requirements of this commandment. Namely, that we are to serve the Lord our God with all of our heart in worship. Romans 12.1 instructs us to give ourselves to Him in service. Ephesians 6.6 6 says that we are to do the will of God from the heart, serving the Lord, not man. And then in 109, our catechism goes on to instruct us on things that are forbidden. Namely, worshiping God in a way that He has not determined. And so, making images of God or making images of one of His attributes. Again, this was the sin of making the golden calf, seeking to sort of highlight or accentuate the strength and power of the Lord captured in that image. But if we are after the heart in worship, then what is forbidden in this commandment is also hypocrisy, a divided heart that is giving the appearance of worshiping and serving God, but the heart is not engaged in worship because the heart is more concerned about the self than it is the Lord. Wilhelmus Abrockel writes that what is forbidden is having a non-religious disposition of the heart. And he describes and gives examples of what that non-religious disposition of the heart might look like. He says it might look like a cold or indifferent heart toward the Lord. It might be a heart in which there is little effort to know Him or to know His will, little desire to be with God's people and to live for Him. This might look like spiritual laxity, listlessness, laziness, using any excuse that you can think of to not be in worship, allowing your thoughts to wander during the preaching of God's Word, and then blaming the minister for being too long-winded or not having enough illustrations to keep you attentive. A Brockle's words, not mine. And then when the sermon is finished, perhaps you're done, just checked out with no real thought about how to take the word of the Lord and to cherish it within your heart. Sinclair Ferguson points out that in our time we hear one, maybe two sermons a week averaging 30 to 40 minutes. In the time of the Reformation, the church listened to seven to nine preachings of God's Word upwards of an hour each time. We're too busy binging on Netflix. 
the reformers were busy binging upon the word of the Lord. Is it any wonder that they were more prepared to face persecutions and trials and hardships than we are? Calvin writes that the goal of God's work in us is to bring our lives into harmony and agreement with his own righteousness. That God is after his people growing in holiness of life to make us like him. And we are progressively conformed through the law, the law which gives us a picture of God's own image. And so that's the content, we might say, of the second commandment, worshiping the Lord that we might be made like him. But what is the reason behind this commandment? This is our second point this evening, the basis of the second commandment. Why is it inappropriate to have an image of God, an image that represents him? Why is it inappropriate to have something that may represent even just an attribute or a portion of God's nature? Well, one of the reasons is to set God's people apart from all the pagan nations of the world. In pagan practice, images, icons would be treated as talismans that would represent the deity. The worshiper presumed that some image that he might take with him would function as a conduit between this physical realm and the spiritual realm above, and would be a way for him to sort of cajole that God into doing his bidding. But God's people were to be different from the pagan practices of the world. Joel Beakey points out that man does not control God. God controls man, and he will not allow himself to be controlled. Our focus, Beaky says, is to be upon the promises of the Lord, and any image would only distract from such promises. Our children's catechism, which I know a number of you use within your homes, and I would encourage you to do that as your children grow and spend time in that children's catechism through your time of family worship. The catechism teaches us that God is a spirit and has no body as man, and that while I do not see him, he always sees me. And so another reason for this second commandment is the creator-creature distinction. We are to have no images of God because any image would be part of the created realm, and our God as the creator is in a separate and distinct category unto himself. Everything else is in a state of constant change, but God alone is self-existent, immutable, and unchangeable in all of his ways. And an image, by its very definition as created, could not capture these truths about our Lord. One commentator that I read put it like this, an idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God, impotent, the all-present God, local, the living God, dead, and the spiritual God, material. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of what he actually is. Well, why else should we not have an image of God? Well, God is the living God. Any image is constrained, limited, impersonal, man-derived, man-oriented. No image can capture the beauty and the majesty of God. 
He is the majestic King who rules over all of His creation. He is our merciful Father who in sovereign grace has drawn us to Himself and continues to provide for us. He is our kind Lord who directs all of our ways. He is our loving Redeemer who hears the prayers of His people and who tends to our needs. And what image could ever capture such truths about the Lord? Thomas Watson wrote, If anyone should make images of snakes or spiders, saying he did it to represent his prince, would not the prince take it in disdain? What greater disparagement to the infinite God than to represent him by that which is finite, the living God by that which is without life? and the maker of all by a thing which is made. And so in short, it is insulting to God to depict Him using our own ingenuity or creativity. But there's still another reason why we are to have no images. We read here in verse 5 that it is because of His covenant jealousy. Now turn with me, if you will, over to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. We see a bit of exposition behind giving some further reason for the second commandment. Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water upon the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care lest you forget the covenants of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And so how should we understand this attribute of jealousy as it is ascribed to God? We understand his jealousy as we grow to understand his covenant faithfulness. And so we should not think of jealousy in the same category as something like envy. Envy is to desire something that is not yours. Jealousy is the right to protect something that is yours, an appropriate way to guard and keep that which belongs to you. And so the parent, for example, is right to be jealous for the safety of her child. And she is right to actively work to protect him from those things that might harm him. The husband is right to be jealous for the fidelity of his marriage. And he is right to actively seek to protect the sanctity of that relationship. 
So we understand, even on this human plane, that there are appropriate ways to be jealous. The Lord's jealousy is in the form of fervent zeal for His own honor, glory, and integrity. And it is a jealousy that is directed toward fidelity on the part of His covenant people. And so it is appropriate for our God to be jealous for the hearts of those who are His because He has purchased us with the shed blood of Christ. We belong to Him, and so He has the right to protect that covenantal relationship. Old Testament scholar John Currid puts it like this, that in the covenant, mutual fidelity is to define the union. And you see, if God were not a jealous God, then He would be indifferent toward His people. And so you see, there is no doubt that the Lord is faithful to His covenant promises. The question raised by the second commandment is, will we as His people respond according to the charge that is before us to walk faithfully with our God? And then notice in the second half of verse 5 and in verse 6, that there is further instruction in this commandment on why we should not seek to make some image of the Lord. These are reasons that should help motivate us toward obedience. And so this is our third point from the text. Why should we keep this commandment? And so in the form of both warnings and promises, we are given motivating reasons to keep this commandment. First, notice the warnings or the consequences that we see in the text. The Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And so these severe consequences help us to see the serious nature of our approach in worship. Now, one question that might come to mind for us is, why would the Lord judge the generations of children for the sins of the fathers. Why should they be responsible for his sin? Is that what's going on here in this warning? If you were to read through Ezekiel chapter 18, you would read there that the son who does not walk in the sins of his father but walks in obedience will not be judged for his father's sin. So how do we reconcile this seeming disparity between judgment for the father's sin versus not being judged for the father's sin? Well, notice in Exodus 20 that the threat of punishment from one generation to the next is of those who hate the Lord. And so it's not only the hatred of the father towards the Lord, but it is a hatred toward God that continues down the generational lines and therefore judgment falls upon them because they continue, we might say, in that spirit of disdain and hatred towards God. And so each generation is responsible for how they approach the Lord. The children and grandchildren are guilty because they too hate God as they follow in their father's footsteps of disdain. Kevin DeYoung writes that the children share in their father's punishment because they share in their father's sin. Now, in this cultural setting in which the word of the Lord was given, it would be common for multiple generations to live within the same household. 
And while this is certainly the father setting a bad example for following generations, there is more going on as we think about the principle that is grounded in the covenant. The point here is that this should serve as an incentive, especially to those of us who are fathers, who are heads of household, to think about the impact of our sin upon our offspring, to think about our indifference toward worship and the effect that they may have upon our children and grandchildren, to think about how those things that Abrockle talked about, that spiritual lethargy or listlessness or lack of zeal for the Lord might have impact upon those who follow us. And so it's the wicked influence of sin that should make us both fearful before the Lord and watchful over our own hearts. But there's not just warnings that are given to help motivate us toward obedience. Notice in the text that there are also promises which serve as a motivation for obedience. We see this in verse 6. The Lord shows steadfast love to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so note the contrast here and note the overabundance of God's grace and mercy. While there is judgment to the third and fourth generation, there is love for a thousand generations. Of course, that does not mean that we literally count a thousand generations and put an end to God's love, but this is hyperbole to speak about the everlasting nature of God's love toward those who are His. And so just as the warning should serve as a motivation for obedience, so the promise should serve as an incentive toward obedience, filling the mind and heart with the wonder of God's grace and blessings. And so really all that is required, we could say, is responding to the amazing grace of God by loving Him. His love and mercy are abundant, infinite, endless in nature. And as we grow to understand the goodness of God, that will move us to respond to Him in increased love and devotion. Now, there's one more important thing that I think is worth addressing, and that is how we should think of images of Christ for pedagogical or evangelistic reasons. And this is our fourth point this evening. How should we think of images of Jesus? In pastoral ministry, we hear this question frequently. Is it okay to have pictures of Jesus in things like children's literature for teaching purposes? What should we think of things like the Jesus film or the Passion of Christ? Or I think there's a new Netflix or Amazon series called The Chosen. I don't know if there are depictions of Christ, but if there aren't, there will inevitably be other theatrical versions that will make their way into popular culture. And we hear questions like this, well, aren't such things appropriate when we think about the impact that such things are having? You see, American pragmatism can be so ingrained in our thinking that we justify such depictions of Jesus by the supposed results that they produce. We are told that there are untold numbers who come to faith in Christ through these visual means, so doesn't that validate such things? But I hope you would agree that just because something produces results does not validate the method or the means toward those results. 
And I think the teaching of the second commandment is clear. Though Christ is the incarnate God, we've heard of this throughout this Christmas season, that Jesus had a body as man. Any depiction of Jesus is going to fall short. We don't know what he sounded like. We don't know how he nuanced his words and emphasized such things in his teachings. We don't know what he looked like, sounded like. There is no physical description of him in the Bible other than a place like Isaiah 53, which says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. The Heidelberg Catechism, I think, does a great job of really asking this question and answering it directly. This is in question and answer 98. May not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? You see, it's the same question that we oftentimes hear. We might add to that if the Heidelberg were written today, it would probably put in that question, what about theatrical images, reenactments of the life and ministry of Jesus. But the answer to the Heidelberg is clear. No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God who will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. Now, I think what we are to take from the teaching of the Heidelberg is the emphasis that we started with tonight, trusting in the sufficiency of God's word and looking to the means of grace that he has ordained for conversion and for our growth in grace. Someone has written, when it comes to images or visual depictions of Jesus, consider what we need, not what we want. Realize that God knows better than you do. Everything in the Christian life is a matter of trust and obedience. Do you trust that God is good and wise enough to tell you how to approach him? Will you obey the clarity and sufficiency of his word, trusting in the word of the Lord more than looking to the tantalizing images that you might want? In John chapter 14 is part of the upper rim discourse. Philip asks, asks Jesus to show them the Father, and Jesus responds, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect likeness of our Heavenly Father, and we see Him not in some artificial depiction that we create, but we see Him in His Word, and we see Him in His Word proclaimed. We behold Him on the pages of Scripture, and as we do, the Holy Spirit is pleased to change us into His likeness. It is in the Word of God that we see His grace that we see his mercy and his tenderness and his love. The emphasis should not be upon the visible depiction, but upon the word. Because again, these are his means that he has ordained. And we would be both wise and obedient to trust in those means. Deuteronomy 4, that passage that we read earlier, makes it clear that as much as the children of Israel saw the darkness of the cloud fall upon Mount Sinai, as much as they felt the ground shake upon God's arrival, as much as they smelled the burning of the fire and heard the blast of the trumpet, as much as their senses were engaged, 
God remained hidden, and the emphasis at Sinai was upon the Word. Verse 12, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Philip Ryken says that what the image always wants to do in worship is distract us from hearing the word. And so the more that we hear him, the more that we treasure him. The more that we treasure him, the more that we value him. The more that we grow in our love for him, and the more we long to worship him. For worship is giving to the Lord that which is due his name. It's reckoning him as worthy of all that we are and all that we have. Imagine that you have an heirloom that has been passed down to you from one generation to the next. Your family doesn't even know its origin or how long it's been in the family, but the tradition, perhaps upon a wedding of the oldest child, is to pass this heirloom down to the next generation. And you put it in your dresser drawer and keep it there more for sentimental reasons than anything else. But one time, one day you hear of the Antiques Roadshow coming into town. And you think to yourself, I'm just going to go down there and see if they can give me some understanding of the origin or history of this heirloom. And so as you hand it over to that expert, he takes out his monocle and he talks about all the beautiful, intricate details, things that you never noticed before. But as he describes them, you see them in a new light. And then he tells you that this heirloom was made by one of the greatest artisans who ever lived. And he tells you that he's only seen a few of these in his lifetime. None of them is well-preserved and taken care of as this one. And then when he goes to give you a price, a value for that, he's hesitant to tell you how much it's worth. He says that it is, in fact, the most valuable thing that he has ever seen in his life. You're not going to take that heirloom home and toss it in the back drawer again and think to yourself, oh, that's nice. You're going to buy a giant safe, and you're going to store it there. And then you're going to talk with your spouse as soon as they are home about how you're going to put this heirloom on display for others to appreciate its history and its beauty. And you begin to talk about how this one thing will completely transform your life. But it's not as though the object itself has changed. It's the same as it was before. But what changes is you because of your understanding of what you own and what you possess. You're different, and your life is transformed because of the value and the beauty and the worth, and you treasure it like never before. And in a sense, that's what true worship is intended to do. You don't just learn things about God because they stimulate your intellectual curiosity and then just toss them back into the mental filing cabinet of your mind to collect dust. But you realize how valuable he is, and your heart is softened, and your outlook on life changes, and you look at everything differently because of this great treasure that you have in the Lord of glory, the creator of all, the incarnate one who laid down his life and rose again to justify those who are in union with him. And now, no matter what trial might come in your life, 
you know that He is kind and that He is good and that He loves you because He is King over all and He is your Redeemer and He has not left you alone and He will never leave you alone and He cares for you more than you could ever imagine. This is the God we long to know. This is the God whom we love. And this is our Savior whom we desire to worship. May the Lord be pleased to take the truth of His Word and write it upon the hearts of those who are His redeemed children.